Well, good morning. Good to see you on this long weekend. Uh, we're going to be looking at a big chunk of Job this morning. We're going to try and cover 35 chapters. We'll see how we go. Uh, but if you had a Bible open there, that would be helpful. I think I've got all the verses I'm referring to on the screen behind me, but it'd um, be handy if you uh, can look that up for yourself as well. How about I pray and uh, ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Father, we thank you that uh, you guide us in this life, uh, that you provided these uh, books that we call wisdom literature uh, that um, help us to see uh, what wise living looks like, um, and particularly as we look at Job, um, how we can uh, cope with the dilemmas of this life and the realities of suffering. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say with friends like these... Who needs enemies? Uh, and today we uh, look at what happens when Job's friends come to visit him, to counsel him, to comfort him. Uh, and as we see them speak with Job, that expression seems rather appropriate. They make a good start, but they really offer rather miserable comfort to Job. Uh, last week we looked at the first couple of chapters of Job and we see the, the catastrophic, catastrophic events that overtake Job's life. Job has everything taken from him. His wealth, his health, even his own family. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, we find Job sitting outside the city uh, at a, a local garbage dump, it seems, sick and weary with his grief and his pain. Now, three of Job's friends hear about his misfortune, uh, and they decide to do something about it. They decide they're going to go and sympathise with Job to comfort him. Uh, we get introduced to them at the end of chapter 2. Their names are, well, you'll read them with me. Chapter 2 from verse 11. It says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So we meet Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, and they agree that they're going to go and visit Job together to, to comfort him. And when they arrive, they can barely recognise the man uh, and it causes them to weep. They mourn. They mourn for him. They mourn with him. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights saying nothing. Now, we might all like to have some friends like these, wouldn't we? People that are prepared not only to come and visit, but to meet with us in our grief and in our pain. But if only it had stayed that way, because as soon as they opened their mouths, any comfort they were providing for Job quickly disappears. Uh, these three are often referred to as Job's miserable comforters, and that's partly because that's what Job himself calls them in chapter 16. He has a crack at them. 
Um, but it's true that they offer this miserable comfort to their friend. They're there. Uh, but what they have to say to him uh, is nothing short of cruel. The vast majority of the book of Job, uh, 42 chapters, most of it is taken up with this interaction between Job and these three friends. Um, the first is just the three of them. Later in the book, um, a young upstart named uh, Elihu, he shows up, but we'll leave him out of things for now because most of the 35 chapters are taken up between this back and forth between Job and his friends as they each uh, in turn make their, their speeches and respond to one another. And that's what takes up the heart of this book. Now there's a lot in here. Uh, we're obviously not going to deal with all of it in any uh, detail, uh, but I do think we can get to the heart of the matter this morning. Now the problem that Job has with his friends, and in fact the problem that Job's friends have, is that they think they understand what's going on. They think they know why Job has fallen on such hard times. Eliphaz sums it up in his very first speech. Uh, go to chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He makes it clear. He says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Now, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And this is the basic crux of their argument. The people get what they deserve that people reap what they sow. According to Job's three friends, innocent people don't suffer. Bad things only happen to bad people. And given what has happened to Job, well, that means he must have done something awful. And so their advice to Job, what they keep telling him he should do, is to fess up, to come clean to admit before God what he's done, to repent and ask for God's forgiveness. Then and only then they say, will God end his suffering? I mean, they say this numerous times. I'll just give you one example. Chapter 22, verse 21. Uh, this is uh, typical of the things they say to Job. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up your, uh, his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent. It's a simple matter of arithmetic for these guys. Obey God and you will prosper. Get rid of that evil in your life that's brought all this trouble on you and God will restore you. Now, it may be a simplistic view of how the world works, but it's a pretty common one. It's a kind of a theistic version of karma, I suppose, that life is cause and effect. And whether you think there is a God behind it or if it's the natural laws of the universe, lots of people think that that's how life works, that, that you get what you deserve. Good things come to good people, bad things to bad people. A few years ago now, a friend of Catherine's was looking for a house to rent and she was having trouble putting in a lot of applications, getting knocked back, and she found one that she really wanted and she said, and I quote, I should get this house. I'm a good person. I deserve it. And she wasn't joking. She was dead serious. 
And I think that same basic idea is popular in, in lots of Christian circles too, but we, we put God behind it. So the idea is that if you're faithful to God, he will bless you. And that blessing will take the form of a blessing financially, in terms of your good health, you'll prosper in your work, in your relationships, it'll all be smooth sailing. Now that kind of sounds lovely, doesn't it? Until you think carefully about the flip side of that coin. Because what is often not said is that it necessarily has to mean that if you are suffering in some way, it must be the result of some unconfessed sin. See, there's a cruelty in karma that says you get what you deserve. Is your health failing? Well, you must have done something to deserve that. Lost your job? Take a look in the mirror. From the trite to the very serious, this notion loads people up with guilt, turns them to superstitious thinking. Your car breaks down. See, you shouldn't have missed church last week. Job's three, three friends think that they've got this sorted out. But the problem is, we know from the first two chapters of Job that they're just plain wrong. They've made an assumption about Job that simply isn't true. Job is not suffering because of some sin in his life. God himself has declared him to be an upright man, blameless even. And so in the end, Job's friends incorrect assumptions and their dodgy worldview mean they offer poor counsel to their friend Job. And even worse than that, they end up saying all kinds of very painful and cruel things. Uh, that reading that we just had, when Bildad speaks to Job, I don't know if you noticed it, but he goes as far as saying that Job's children who died in a, a collapsed house, they, they died because they were getting what they deserved. Chapter 8, verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. This is what ends up happening when you've got a faulty view of God and how he works in the world. You end up saying stupid things like this. Now, to be fair, Job's friends over the course of these discussions say all kinds of things that are true of God. They want to acknowledge that God is in control of everything. They want to acknowledge that God is good, that God is perfectly just. They want to defend God's honour. And all of that is admirable. Job's friends aren't totally on the wrong track with all the, the, the wisdom that they espouse to, all their truisms. I mean, there is wisdom in the whole you reap what you sow thing, isn't there? In fact, the wisdom literature that we have in the Bible, particularly the book of Proverbs, is full of similar statements to the kind of statements that Job's friends make, that people suffer as a result of their folly, that their bad decisions, their selfish choices have consequences in their lives. Something like stating that if you are lazy, you will not succeed. I mean, there's truth in that, isn't there? That living in a way that's reckless, that ignores God, that has an impact. 
And we see plenty of times in the Bible where we see God come in judgment when he brings people's sinful choices down on their own heads. All of that is true, but it's not a logical equation because it's also true that wicked and arrogant people often get away with it, don't they? And relatively innocent people can suffer terribly. Job's friends have a view of God that is just too simplistic. And it means they end up coming to the wrong conclusion, that Job has somehow brought this on himself. And they get it wrong about Job's situation because they've got it wrong about God. Now, some people think that theology is boring and not relevant to life. But I don't think there's anything more relevant or more important than theology. Now, theology is just a fancy word that means the knowledge of God. And what we understand and what we believe about God is going to affect how we live, how we organise our lives, how we treat other people, and yes, even how we deal with suffering. And if what you believe about God and how he operates in the world is faulty, well, you'll likely get it wrong when it comes to how you live your life. But if you know God for who he truly is, life will make more sense. You will cope better. You will be better equipped to help others. And you will find true wisdom for living. You'll also be less likely to make the mistake that Job's friends do with their rather misguided, tough love approach towards Job. In fact, in a way, I think Job's friends provide us with a model for how not to comfort those who are suffering. There's a great verse in Proverbs that says this, Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Many times you're better off saying nothing at all or at least saying, I don't know. Just sit and share someone's grief like Job's friends did at first. Often the worst thing you can do is to try and offer an explanation, to, to try and provide the answer as to why something has happened. I'm sure Job would have appreciated it if his friends had said a whole lot less than they did. Now, if Job has a centre for the book as a whole, uh, most commentators will point to chapter 28 as being the, the heart of the book. Um, chapter 28 is different. It, it kind of interrupts the, the dialogue between Job and his friends. And it's, it's written differently. It's, it's a poem. It's a poem that's an ode to wisdom itself. And it asks the question, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And it uses a series of images and comparisons to try and get us to appreciate two things, at least. How precious wisdom is and how hard it is to find. It says that wisdom is more precious than, than rare gems and gold. It says it cannot be bought. It's not easily found. 
In fact, it says that only God knows where it dwells. And then right at the end of chapter 28, it concludes with its own answer. It says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Where is wisdom found? Well, ultimately, it's found through knowing God. And this expression of, of having a fear of the Lord, it's not about being afraid of God. It's a way of talking about being in right relationship to God, recognising who God is, that God alone sees everything that happens under the heavens, that God alone knows why. So Job 28 makes the point that true wisdom is not found in knowing why a particular person is suffering at a particular moment. But the true wisdom is a matter of knowing God himself. And that's basically the mistake that Job's friends make. They consider themselves wise. They have many words to share. But they think wisdom is shown by explaining to Job why he is suffering. And because they think they figured it out, they end up saying all those unhelpful things. The problem is they don't know God fully. Because their theology is faulty, they lack the wisdom to comfort Job. And Job, at its heart, is a book about wisdom. A wisdom that begins with appreciating the difference between us and God. Appreciating that for us, our, our knowledge is limited. There will be mystery in this life. That only God has true, complete and perfect knowledge of all that happens. Job tells us that for us, wisdom is found in knowing God and in trusting God. Because only he knows the beginning from the end. And only he knows why. So when it comes to suffering, Job encourages us to be less focused on trying to figure out why it's happening, but instead to seek to understand and know God better through it. Um, it's an idea that gets picked up again in the New Testament as well. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Wisdom is understanding that suffering is not necessarily the result of something that you did. It, it can be, that's true, but it doesn't operate like karma. Instead, as, as someone who knows God, you can actually seek to learn from it. You can grow through it and you can seek to help others by it. In the end, you can even learn to trust God better because of it. As a follower of Jesus, you have hope of what lies beyond this life. And so you can honour God with how you deal with suffering now. Because you know that this life, well, this life will come to an end, but life does not end with whatever many years you get on this planet. Knowing God changes 
how we approach and how we deal with suffering. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make it painless. But God does offer us that comfort. If Job is anything, he presents as a man in need of Jesus. Job feels isolated. He feels deserted. His suffering is immense. His friends aren't really helping. But perhaps Job's biggest source of anguish comes from the fact that that he doesn't understand why this is happening to him. Job knows that by any human measure, his suffering is disproportionate to what he has done. And remember, God agrees with him on that point. But what Job wants more than anything is to hear an explanation from God. That's what he demands over and over again, to be able to plead his case. But Job knows that he can't just walk up to God and duke it out, although he comes close to suggesting he'd like to do that in a few places. At one point, Job expresses a desire for a mediator, someone to go between him and God. In chapter 9, verse 32, it says this, He's not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job feels like he needs someone to plead his case before God, someone to arbitrate between him and God. What Job needs is to know that God understands, that God hears him, that God cares. What Job really needs is Jesus. In Hebrews, it describes Jesus' role this way. It says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, sorry, empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Job wants someone to stand between him and God to to bridge that gap, to know that God understands and that God cares. That's the very role that Jesus fulfills. He came as a man, made like us in every way, suffered in the flesh just as we do, faced every temptation, knew what it was to be lonely, to be tired, to be betrayed, to hurt. He knew hunger and pain. And we can know that God can sympathise with us, empathise with us, because Jesus has lived this life. But even more than that, Jesus comes as that mediator, that advocate between us and God. Like a a high priest, Jesus makes atonement for our sin. He removes that rod, that terror that Job was feeling before God. And for us, we can now approach God with confidence, 
sure of where we stand because of him. Job didn't know it, but Jesus was the answer to his prayers. Knowing Jesus doesn't mean we won't suffer in this life, but it does mean we'll be better able to cope with our suffering. Knowing who Jesus is, what he did for us, knowing that God does understand, all of that matters. And there is real comfort there. Comfort that only comes with the wisdom of knowing the one true God. We're going to respond in prayer and Joe's going to lead us in that.